Welcome to Resonance, conversations about life and music, a production of Palaver Strings with me, your host, Nate Martin. Today, I'm sharing a conversation that I had with Heath Marlowe. He's a cellist, a founding member of Community Music Works. He was formerly the assistant dean of arts leadership at New England Conservatory, where he still teaches some classes, and he works as director of development for Emanuel Music in Boston. Now, in the late 90s, Heath was doing freelance work around Boston, and he encountered the group Wild Ginger, an orchestra of 20-somethings who rehearsed collaboratively, even though they had a conductor, and performed in unusual spaces. I'm linking a video in the show notes because it's amazing. Wild Ginger is in the same lineage as Orpheus and A Far Cry and other groups that have inspired Palaver Strings. Now, they're not around anymore, but they were one of these bold experiments in classical music performance that responded to a dream of music making that was unfulfilled by the opportunities of those people in their time. It was there that Heath met Sebastian Ruth, who's the founder and artistic director of Community Music Works, where another bold experiment was taking place, this time in the realm of music education, specifically bringing free string lessons to the underserved communities of Providence, Rhode Island. Now, I met Heath through Palaver. He's helped us a few times working on our mission statement. Uh, Part of his work was convincing me that a mission statement was an important thing to have at all, and he did that. Uh, And he's also helped me quite a lot in the development of this podcast. Now, at the time of this conversation, it was 2018, And Palaver had just decided to move to Portland. We had done a feasibility study and everything, but we were still based in Boston. And what I knew about Heath was pretty much limited to his involvement in community music works. But I learned a lot more about him through this conversation, including that we grew up in neighboring towns uh, and that one of his passions really is supporting and designing music organizations for maximum impact and maximum longevity. My conversations with Heath have always validated something for me, that the arts are important, and that artists don't need to be starving to create great work. In fact, just the opposite. For me, he takes the mystery away from the word success in the music world. He does that by making something of a study of what great organizations do, and the way that musicians can learn from that and work with each other to have happier and more fulfilling lives. Yeah. So, here's Heath Marlowe. We had a conversation a couple weeks ago where one thing that I came away from that was was the recognition that we're from different generations, but only one. Um, and, like, I identified as millennial, and I think I remember you identifying as Gen X, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, like, I think like one of the things that I want to try and get at in this interview mm-hmm. is like you've I think you've been really courageous as a person who has taken a step back from the classical music community mm-hmm. and taken like a broad view of it kind of decided what you thought was important realized that what you thought was important wasn't really matching up with like the things that were happening and started taking proactive steps to make exciting things happen that you were excited about. Um, but that wasn't a like value of classical music culture. Mm-hmm. I think that was courageous. And I want to know if you feel like that was courageous. <laughs> and I just like, I want to like kind of explore the different ways that. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love that. I I wish that was the actual story. I mean, I wish that was, (laughs) I wish that I, like I could say that and feel confident that that's actually what's going on. But I love the framing of, let's say I'm, I'm in an in-between spot, right? Like there's still people clearly who are authority figures in the music world and people who are older than you and older than me, who we both look up to, who are formative, right? And then I'm 41, so where do I fit into this ecosystem? I'm not just starting out, like we talked about this, right? right? And do I know enough where I am now to, and am I, am I, 
am I saying this is what I know and this is what I believe, or am I still kind of just reacting to the environment? And maybe sometime later, you know, 20 years, then I'll know what I really think. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But on the other hand, it actually, and this is something that I think about, you know, it is, it is time to either put up or shut up in some ways for me, right? (laughs) Like, like I can have my own individual practice and I can be influenced by things that I've learned and seen, but I actually do feel some responsibility to share what I think with other people and to help other people accomplish their goals and to have some, you know, like a wider impact. I'm interested in that. And that means that I can't simply defer to, um, the way that things have been or are if I see it differently. Right. So, yes. So I'm, this is a, this is a good timing for me because, you know, to be frank, being interviewed and being recorded, that's not, that's not on my, on my bucket list. Right. Right. This is not, I mean, I, I love listening to other people be interviewed and I like talking to other people, but I don't necessarily treasure sitting in this chair, hearing my own voice, second guessing what I say, making sure it's smart enough. Right. But it's a stepping up moment for me. And I know that people will listen and people that I care about and respect like you are involved in this process. And that seems worthwhile, right? I I wonder where you started with cello. And I I wonder, do you have a moment of a memory that's a moment where you realize like, oh, this, Mm. like, let's do this. Mm. Well, there's one moment that I um, remember that I've identified in the past as being a defining moment where I said, wait a second, this is what I want to do professionally. Um, That comes in the context of already like 13 years of learning the cello before I got to that moment. I don't, I don't remember all the moments before that, but I'm sure there are many. The one moment I'm talking about is being in Jordan Hall at NEC and hearing the Borromeo String Quartet perform Schumann Piano Quintet with Russell Sherman. And I was so taken with that experience and it was so dynamic. I thought, that's, that's why I want to be a cellist and what, that's why I want to go to music school. And that that's, you know, but that that was... That was not a surprise. It was just sort of clarifying for me like that. That's what I loved. How old were you? So I think that I probably was a junior or senior in high school. I mean, I think I was at that point where I was trying to decide, am I going to do this seriously? Yeah. Did you grow up in the Boston area? I grew up outside of Boston. I was born in Concord. I started the cello when I was four. Suzuki Method. I guess here's, here's my story, which was, you know, cello was important to me only because... It was given to me and was I was given the very privileged opportunity of being supported to learn music. And my parents, especially my mother, saw early on where all those opportunities popped up once you were in, right? So, you know, I remember going with at least one of my parents to observe the summer music camp in Concord. I think it was a Suzuki camp or something. And realizing if I could just get a little bit better, I could go to that camp. And it was just like that over and over again. If I was, you know, just kept on the path, there's this next opportunity. And I got all those opportunities, right? It was, you know, the Suzuki camp. And then I remember, um, you know, along the way, there were so many just incredible opportunities. Longy School of Music had a Saturday music program that was just immersive from nine in the morning till six at night. And so every Saturday for a number of years, I'd spend at Longy with my friends playing music. There was music camp during the summer. I was at Greenwood Music Camp for four summers. And then, you know, it turns out there's, even when you're finished being in high school, there's still music camp. I, you know, Kaniza Hall, Tanglewood, Banff. Yeah. It's all, you know, music camp for grownups. Right. And I think ultimately if I could just do what I want to do and live the way I want to live, I would just go to music camp. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I mean like what is it I 
first of all, I like totally, I'm totally right there with you, hmm. but I wonder what it is, what it was about some those camps yeah, yeah. and what it is about your idea of summer camp that yeah. like makes you want to keep going back. The through line is the social part of, of music, right? Like I want to be around other people and music was the way to do that. Like that was the, the sort of the focal point. And so the thing that is meaningful are the relationships between people and me feeling like I'm valuable and valued in, in the middle of something. Yeah. And I, I found that through music. Right. Um, you know, there's always a question and I wonder about this for myself about, is it music or is it the, the friends? And I remember my mother asking me that question on one of those many days when I really was mailing it in, practicing at home. And she was basically like, are you doing this because you actually care about the music or you just want to see your friends? And I knew what I was supposed to say. <laughs> <laughs> but in reality, I can't separate the two. You, uh, so you went to Longy. Mm -hmm. Saturday mornings. Yeah. Or Saturday all day. Yeah. Um, did, and that was like through high school? Well, until um, the the last three years I was in high school, I switched over to NEC to the prep school and did chamber music and orchestra okay. at NEC. Yeah. What, so you said that, that when you were at NEC prep, mm -hmm. that was probably when you saw Borromeo, right? Right. So I think I would have probably been, uh, a, you know, in the spring of my junior year or the fall of my senior year, probably, probably the fall of my senior year, around the time when I was applying to schools and looking at uh, Rice, which is where I ended up. I applied to NEC, Oberlin, and then Yale. I can't remember. Maybe a couple other schools. But thinking, am I really going to pursue cello? Is it like, am I going to be a musician? Yeah. And chamber music was the thing that that got me my idea of what rice is mm -hmm. uh at least now is a place where people go to get ready for orchestras mm, yeah was that true when you were there it was and i didn't go there for that purpose but i certainly benefited immensely from orchestral training under larry radcliffe uh, I, I went was wondering if he was still there so i worked with him at music academy mm-hmm uh, for a couple of weeks and, uh, that like absolutely lit a fire for me. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if you have a sense of clarity about like what it is about him that yeah. inspired people. Yeah. You know, he, he is a, a leader and he's, um, this word sounds negative, but I use it in a positive sense, maniacal about. <laughs> the importance that he places on on being prepared and on um, really giving it the amount of energy and effort that's necessary. And I think it was very clear that that for some musicians in school, orchestras were the thing that you had to do. And so you kind of, you did it. Um, but Larry wouldn't allow it to be less important than than how he saw it. And I think that the school, as I understood it, chose him because they were going to commit to a culture that he was in charge of. And what was unusual, at least as a student from what I understood, was that the entire faculty bought into that. I don't know if this was um, lore or actually happened, but I, I feel like I remember Maybe was, I think it was Norman Fisher coming to orchestra rehearsal to apologize to Larry for keeping one of his students late so that he was late for orchestra rehearsal. I think there was something in that dynamic where the faculty were going to be very clear that everyone took orchestra seriously. And that, as a cultural decision, was really important at the school. Yeah, that's a great story. I feel like the yeah my experience of the power that teachers, that private lesson teachers have at right. a lot of institutions would not be such that they would feel obligated to apologize to anybody about right. anything. Right, right, <laughs> right. But what was very challenging for me was after a year freelancing in Boston and in Rhode Island, I felt like I should go back to school and get a master's. It felt like my somehow my education was not complete because I didn't have that master's degree. 
and and I had committed to Boston University to study with Andres Diaz. And the experience that I had in the BU Orchestra was so much less rigorous and shaping and um, helpful towards my career that it was really painful. And it made me angry and it made me resentful. And that was not a good way to experience school. And it's a large part of why I only lasted one semester and two weeks at BU. I mean, it sounds like there's, you saw like pretty clearly the difference between a community and an obligation. Yeah, that's that's not the the first word that I would want to use. Yes, but there's something about um, an intentional culture, right? That 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 culture is going to happen anyway. Right? You'll have whatever culture you have, but if you grow it intentionally and you make really smart decisions about who's going to lead that culture and how they're going to lead it, and how the, how the community participates in that culture, you can shape it. And that's what Rice achieved. You know, I think they, in some way, they probably started from scratch. I don't remember the history, but I, you know, when I got there, the building still felt kind of fresh. Like it was some, there was something new there that they had established. And they, I think it's easier to start fresh. And, you know, when we'll talk about community music works, there's something about starting from the ground up and building something and making decisions along the way that shape it. Very different than trying to change a culture or an organization that's been, been in place for a long time. You had graduated from Rice and you were in Boston mm -hmm. and, you know, at a certain point deciding to get a master's and then dropping out and then dropping out. And that between like Wild Ginger and CMW, yep. there were these two things that were that were, I mean, startups that were mm -hmm. like creating mm -hmm. something new and so like my point at the beginning being like you're courageous uh -huh. like you're doing something different uh -huh. it it sounds like um instead of courageous you're more just curious is that kind of how you would yeah, or, or like or that's it, how you're you're opportunistic opportunity <laughs> right i mean these things were going on and i was available and i and i did them yeah <laughs> And that's that really is one way that this story works out for people. Yeah. I remember, um, so I mean, I think we're going to get to an interesting junction here, which is when I dropped out of BU, the question was like, what to do next? And um, I remember one time I, you know, I, I, I asked Ellen Heistein, who is the director of Tanglewood, and I respected her opinion. She had written a very important book, I think it's called Through the Looking Glass, that people... Um, at the time, this is like, you know, around 1999, you know, that was kind of like a, a landmark book, at least in my understanding for career development for musicians. And I asked her like, how should I think about this? I forget, I forget if this I asked it. Dropping out of BU? Yeah. And what to do now and how to build my career and, and where should I go? And I'm, I'm not sure that I asked it in any kind of intelligible way, but I do remember very specifically that she wanted me to know that a piece of this is luck and being in the right place at the right time. And in a sense, I feel like she was telling me not to overthink it, that you can't necessarily plan out what's going to happen. And you have to be willing to accept that things are going to happen and you can respond to them. And she might be right. Um... Because maybe that's what happened to me, and maybe things just happened. But I think it's also—I don't think that's the full story, and I don't think she intended it to be the full story. I think she was probably saying, in addition to your interest in trying to build and plan and make good strategic decisions, be open to the idea that there are opportunities and you just take them. Hmm. So, the fact that I got invited to play with Wild Ginger. And someone said, do you want to come play with this orchestra? It doesn't pay anything, but just come with us, play with music with us for a week. And I said, okay. <laughs> uh, or that Sebastian, who I met in Wild Ginger, said, come down to Providence. I've got this new thing going on that I'm trying to build. I just got a grant to teach cello lessons and it pays $2,000 you know, to do cello lessons for the year. Do you want to come down and spend one afternoon in Providence every week teaching cello? And I said, okay. <laughs> right? Um so, so there were there were opportunities that I that I said yes to. 
that um, don't make me think about courage. They just make me think about about being open. I had no other responsibilities. I had nothing to worry about. I was I was I was I was available. I yeah. I I really I hear that. Basically, you're saying that your career is just like your life. That's just like how it's, you know, like that's that's what's happened. But at the same time, what were other people doing? Right. Right. And I mean, I mean, I mean that right. serious. Like, what, like, what were your right. peers doing? Like, what were you noticing that other people were right. doing differently? So the thing that I, the idea that I've held on to, and I, it may be part justification, but I think it's also what I authentically was aware of at the time is that. Joining the freelance musician scene was easy for me and seamless. I had, I think, some connections, or I, I, you know, I came back to Boston where I already knew my way around. And within one year, I had plenty of stuff going on. That was easy. It was joining things was easy. I feel like I, I have enough privileges, right? And that that you know, financially and. Um, you know, from, you know, sort of family support, not having loans. Like there were, there were plenty of things that allowed me to just feel that I could go forth and try stuff out and it worked out. I noticed pretty quickly that there were a lot of people who were doing the same thing that I was doing, who'd been doing it a lot longer. And it made me wonder, or maybe we feel worried that I didn't know where to go next. Schools like this um, escalator up and then you get out of school and you get off the escalator and now what? If you, what if you didn't get up on the top floor? <laughs> what if there's still a few floors to go and there's no escalator? Or if the escalator brought you to a place where there wasn't a floor. <laughs> <laughs> You're sort of between floors. Yeah. Other people fall off the escalator. Uh, they, they take the down escalator and they get off. But I was somewhere in the middle. I think I'd, you know, I'd taken the escalator up through all the opportunities that I'd been given and all the experiences and training. And I was off somewhere near the top. But now, but now I didn't know what to do necessarily besides say yes to the opportunities. I, I didn't have a larger plan besides I like to play the cello because I like to play chamber music and I like seeing my friends and being part of a large social circle of musicians. Were you thinking about that Borromeo concert at that time? Like were you, was that the, was that still the image of success for you? Um. I think so. I think you're you know, when I maybe you're not asking this specifically, but I, I I could still imagine the concert hall with the incredibly high level performance and the crowd cheering and the sort of sensation of excitement and um, being taken away by the music. Yes, there was a, there was a musical experience that I was still seeking. Um, I have sort of an analogous experience, mm-hmm. and I feel like that started to like loom at a certain point of like. Mm-hmm. I haven't reached that yet. Uh-huh. Like, why haven't I reached that yet? Uh-huh. Like, what's what am I doing wrong? Uh-huh. Did that ever come in? So what that makes me think about is that there are these ways in which I kind of created my own reality, right? That, that and, and before you go back to the word courageous, I just think this was, I mean, this was, this is probably what, what people now would refer to as entrepreneurial, that there was a challenge. There was a. I, I needed to create something myself to address the challenge, and that was that I wanted to play more chamber music, and I wanted to find more of these really fun, satisfying situations where I got to play music with friends, and then I got to perform it, and people would enjoy it, and I'd enjoy it, and I created that for myself, and I did that in in living rooms. I didn't do it in concert halls. Sometimes it happened in a concert hall, but what I had access to was a social network of adults who cared about me and who cared about classical music. And some of them were happy to host me in their living room. And I would create a program and I would invite in friends. And sometimes we raised some money and sometimes we just did it because we could. And again, I didn't have, you know, I had the luxuries of of being able to do it that way. And I think when I think of myself as a musician, part of it is being a cellist and the other pieces of it are being able to create those kinds of experiences that I can then perform 
and make music in, right? That, that to me, like that's my professional identity. It's, it's the combination of playing the music and the surrounding skill sets that, that make that possible. Uh, you mentioned Sebastian Ruth yeah. earlier, who is the founder and, you know, executive director or artistic director. I can't remember which one. Right. He's, he's, he's had all the titles, yeah. but currently it's founder and artistic director. Okay. So, um, and he was starting this thing in mm. Providence where he was teaching, giving free lessons, getting grants right. to make sure that students were having free lessons and free rentals. And, uh, I mean, just like the support that they needed to have an education in string. Playing. Right. That was the most noticeable and prominent aspect of community music works to the outside world was that it was a program that provided free music education to kids in a neighborhood for me. And while I still, you know, I, I and now that I have two kids, I, I, I can't say that I don't care about music education and about providing things for kids. But I also, from you know, at that point in my life, I saw what community music works also provided for the musicians themselves. And I think this has been uh, something that's also guided me going forward. That being part of community music works is certainly not a selfless proposition for musicians because the musicians themselves get a lot out of it. Uh, financially, it's debatable, but unfortunately, it is a uh, often a better alternative. Or a better a better job than alternative propositions in that kind of kind of work, just because of the nature of the field is pays doesn't pay well. But community music workers is able to provide a salary and benefits, including contributions to retirement, which is unusual for this type of organization. The benefits include the the being paid, which is important. The security of being part of something that has longevity—that it's—it's it's, you know not a transient um, um, opportunity to do sort of year-to-year work—and also to feel really valued as a musician. And this is this is like a major thing in my life. Again, something that I feel privileged to have seen that I'm not sure everyone else has experienced. And it certainly colored my imagination for what I think the role of musicians could be in society because I have seen it and, uh, and experienced it and it feels good. And I look for that in other places now and I want other people to have that too. Um, and it takes real work and it takes years of building that. When you have this idea that an organization like CMW supports the musicians as much as it supports the community mm-hmm. that it's serving. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that might be a more, like groundbreaking kind of idea in its subtlety because, mm-hmm. you know, conservatory life and this sort of like core convention, mm-hmm. core conventional mm-hmm. classical music world, like it, like, of course the musicians are being right. valued. Like they're up on stage in a mm-hmm. fancy, beautiful hall and they're getting paid higher than mm-hmm. any other musician mm-hmm. in the country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, but there, but there is there is a subtle difference there. But I am happy to say that it's very clear to me that there are tectonic plates shifting under our feet in this world. The models that we subscribe to and that we prioritize and that are at the top of the hierarchy of 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 high art or or um, sort of the legacy of Western European art fine art, it's easier to see that as a construction now, right? Like that's not foundational. Music itself is foundational. Expression, creativity is foundational. The orchestra, the symphony is a, is a construction that came about in the last few hundred years. And I have a much better vantage point now to be able to critique that and say it's wonderful. And for the people who really care about it and value it and find it valuable, that's fantastic. But we can't be satisfied with looking at that as the answer or as the only thing out there. And I wish that as a field, as a part of society, that in the arts that we spend a lot much more of our time investing in experiments 
and being creative and asking challenging questions. And I think what we can do is the easiest thing is to look to groups like Community Music Works, Palaver, A Far Cry, uh, just to name three that we've talked about. You know, there, there's a whole host of experiments that are going on that are happening one out of necessity and two out of opportunity, and they're they're linked. <laughs> and this is the part that is exciting to me. Sort of trying to put a pin in your time at CMW. Yep. Do you feel like there was something that you were able to contribute there that that really exemplifies like why you cared about that organization and mm -hmm. why that mm -hmm. why that made a difference in your life? Mm -hmm. I think it comes back to my my story about myself, about this intersection of music and friends, that there is a, what may have been an exceptional convergence of personalities that lasted long enough and is still lasting there to allow really special things to happen. Um, and I was totally fired up to be part of that. And another thing about Community Music Works that comes with the longevity of creating that community, at some point you realize you're in. You don't have to try anymore to convince anyone. They're convinced. And it feels really good. Mm, yeah. People want you to be there. People expect you to be there. People expect you to do great things. People care about you. And they notice when you're not there. Um, that's so rewarding. Yeah. I want other people, other musicians to have that experience. I'm not sure that you get that when you just go in and out the stage door. Right. Or when you show up to play a, one concert and then you leave town the next day. I don't think that's part of the experience so much. Yeah. I, I think it's I think it's a real wonderful thing that you have identified this thing in yourself of, you know, community music works has a, you know, outward facing message as like we are helping providence mm -hmm. we are helping this town we mm -hmm. are like mm -hmm. creating an opportunity for folks that don't have opportunities mm -hmm. i think it's like really special that you actually feel almost the opposite about that which is <laughs> like this community music works <laughs> helped heat like yeah <laughs> I, I, made Heath feel I'm one special. of the beneficiaries right so so yeah. so we should just look at the mission statement for the organization which is really crucial here which is that it's a mission about building a community the mission is not to provide music education to those who don't have it that's part of it but the mission is specifically about building a community that includes children neighbors and musicians and it's broken down. I think I got that right, but I, you know, it's children, I believe neighbors or community members or parents, whoever that, that group of adults is and specifically and crucially that musicians themselves are part of that community. And that's essential to me, right? Like that's when you, when you talk about burnout without having musicians be benefiting from the mission of the organization, now you've got a recipe for burnout. This is interesting. I, I, I first had this thought. Um, so after Community Music Works, I came to NEC in 2012 to direct the System of Fellows program. And I discovered for the first time, which I had never thought of before, that there were actually people who are committed to service, whether it's part of their religion or something in their, their life that service is an ideal and they see themselves as musicians as being able to provide service to people. And that could be a motivation for why they'd want to do this type of work. That wasn't my motivation. <laughs> Service is a great thing. Right. There's a number of important organizations, uh, Teach for America, for, for instance, right, like that are built on the idea of of, of service. But it's not. There, there's some there's some mutual benefit there, and it's not just. It's not, it's not a byproduct. It's actually built intentionally into it that that for your service, you are also benefiting. You are also receiving some really important goodness out of that experience. And I think, I feel like that's something that I learned. That, that's what I learned while at Community Music Works, that I was also an, an incredibly benefiting from my experience there 
which reinforces the desire to then put more into supporting the mission. And just like another way that I feel like that's a like countercultural message that like takes courage. Like, <laughs> I, I, feel, I feel like, you know, uh, I don't know anything about Doctors Without Borders, uh -huh. but I feel like the cultural narrative about Doctors Without Borders is these amazing doctors mm -hmm. who are giving their time to like mm -hmm. leave their home and their comfort and mm -hmm. the like place that they know mm -hmm. and go to a place and provide service and mm -hmm. like give of themselves. Yep. And there isn't a lot of talking about like what doctors get from that. I know nothing about what right. the doctors get from that, but you're saying that like, you know, the, the, like oh, <laughs> the, the, the most important thing about community music works, which again, like I hear that what the mission statement is, but mm -hmm. like, I didn't, I didn't know that that part about the musicians, uh -huh. you know, the, the customer facing part of that is right. like, this is providing a service to the community. Right. In I, the framing of this conversation around like, so the narrative about me, right? Like I'm, I'm very much aware of how much I benefited by my association with, with this work. And I see that as a recipe for other musicians to feel that way about the work they do. Um, I think it's also a hallmark of a healthy organizational practice to be aware of that. So I, I would hope, even though none of us may be aware of it, but I hope that Doctors Without Borders or any other organization is, you know, they're dancing on that very fine line of making sure that they get the most impact for their customers while also maintaining a workforce that feels like they're getting something back. Otherwise they get drained and they're out, right? They Then they, then they leave. Something that we're very aware of in this field is the kind of turnover that happens in, in especially music education, especially music education for at-risk youth. It's, it's always going to be valuable. It may not always be valued. In fact, it's, it's really not highly valued by kind of larger institutions, the kinds of expertise that's needed for musicians to do this type of work. And the lifespan of a teaching artist in a program for at-risk youth is brief. So the idea that a um, musician might spend 10, 15, or even 22 years at an organization like Community Music Works, to me, that there's a marker there for some some kind of recipe that that, that makes sense. You're now, as you said, working at NEC. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think a lot about talking to myself when I was... You, you mentioned earlier yeah. that, you know, like you as your 41 year old self yep. wasn't, you, you're not feeling sure that you would be able to talk to your 22 year old self and, uh, be able to like really communicate. Yep. Uh, how's it going with the students? <laughs> well, this is, this is going to be interesting because I'm just now this fall for the first time beginning to have responsibilities on campus with current students. Up until, up until now, the time that I've been at NUC, I've been working with um, alumni or postgraduates. The system of fellows were all musicians who had already been through school and were coming here for a fellowship program. And that, so that was been, that's been a natural point of connection for me, thinking with people who are already out in the real world and contending with these things front and center. <laughs> I remember I was so excited. This was three years ago or so, maybe three or four years ago. I remember being in a classroom and there was a cellist who had been to Oberlin as an undergrad was here at NEC as a master's student. And she was saying all the things that just got me excited about having a conversation with her. And I said, let's, let's have coffee and let's just talk about all this stuff. And I had so much to offer and I was so smart and, um, had so much expertise to give her. And she sat there and I think the last thing I said was some advice about, getting gigs and she opened her notebook and wrote it down. And in that moment, it dawned on me like the previous 44 minutes, how much she did not think was relevant and that chose not to write down and how little I had been aware of, you know, all the stuff that I was spouting on about. It just was a total, total mismatch, right? That, that, that things are relevant when they're relevant. Yeah. What, what would you do with yourself? Like, what would you, what would you actually do if like 22 year old Heath yeah. was one of your charges? I think I would ask him to think about this purpose and mission idea. Remind him that it's may change daily and that's fine. It, the, the change is expected, but 
the absence of the thinking about it may be problematic because you may get down a road in which you've made a lot of decisions or a lot of things have happened to you and that you haven't been able to make be, been proactive in, in, in creating the kind of the, the kind of life experience that, 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 that you actually really want. Yeah. And um, I think I would so I'd, I would encourage I would encourage him to take a crack at that now and that I'll be available whenever he wants to check in about it. In fact, let's let's talk every every six months and see see how things are going. Not because there's a there's an end point to this, but you know, like that's that's a that's 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 valuable. Having having that kind of support, you know. Again, organizations have this. Organizations have boards. They have advisory boards. They have consultants. They do strategic planning. Every three years or five years, they kind of refresh themselves. They make sure their mission is is correct. They adjust ideally to the external environment. It happens because there's an expectation of that happening. That's that's considered good work. Let's apply that same kind of practice to ourselves. Um, so just to conclude, yep. I like to ask people, uh, we haven't talked about palaver yet. We have, we have to conclude. I like to ask people about how much they love palaver. <laughs> no. Well, um, cause there's, no, there's, I, <laughs> well, assuming that there's, you know, the, the only people who are going to hear this are going to be people who care about palaver. That's true. Um, I could just go ahead without you even have to ask a question. Like what I, what I want to say about palaver is that I, Let's see. How did I even meet Palaver? I think, I think Josie, who I knew from Community Music Works, introduced me to Maya, and Maya came over to NEC. I think just by herself, and we sat outside and talked for a while. And I knew what she and others were trying to build. And I was thinking, I wish you know, like I could find a way to be helpful here. And it pretty quickly led to finding a way to be helpful. <laughs> um, and I. I guess I, I could say that the beginning I didn't I wasn't convinced I didn't know Palaver I, I I was talking about this with Maya without ever having heard a concert so f- I got to a concert and that created a really positive impression I heard Schoenberg Verklertenacht late at night at a church in Jamaica Plain um, uh, I've heard Palaver in uh, in a kind of alternative venue in Providence at AS220 and at a private home and in a, in a theater and several other places. And, um, but I've also had the privilege of getting to know the people of Palaver. So just cause everything always seems to tie back to it. It's, it's the relationships and the people It's the music and the people. And I feel like there's an exceptional group of people at Palaver. I sense that possibility, the, the idealism, the commitment, I'll say courage. I mean, there, there's courage. There's there's an opportunity, and people are making choices to seize that opportunity. So, um, on a sort of tactical level, I've really enjoyed helping think about how to make a good decision about moving to Portland. I'm really thrilled that Palaver is choosing a city and choosing an identity of being, uh, you know, in Maine, in Portland. I'm thrilled that there's a uh, a board and that their successful fundraising is happening. And, um, I'm also just really excited to be in any small part, helping the organization think about itself and not what's happening on stage or while playing music, but what about the rest of it? What about, what about the people part and the culture and how is it going to continue to feel really special and, um, now that it's achieved achieved that at the beginning, how do you sustain it? Yeah. So I'm 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 in. Oh well, thanks. Um, a uh, my last question is uh, just if you can provide a rose and a thorn for uh, your career. Just whole whole darn thing. <laughs> We do this at home sometimes with my daughters who are seven and ten. Which so you'd think I'd be well versed at it, but 
mostly it's focused on getting them to do it. I don't know. I don't know if I have a, a, a good answer for Rosenthorn. Got a bad one? <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a story. When I leave the room, I'm headed out to go teach a cello lesson to my 81-year-old cello student. And I think she's been my student for seven or eight years. I mean, somewhere somewhere between like six years and 10 years. I'm not sure. But she's, you know, she's a friend. And we found each other. And she's the one student I have. There's definite mutual benefit from this relationship. You know, she learns some stuff about the cello from me. And I feel like I learn a lot from her. And I always feel inspired by getting the chance to spend time with her. And she's opened up a kind of additional community to, to me that I didn't have before. And last year, I brought a string quartet to her house and we played a late Beethoven string quartet and got to do it exactly the way we wanted to do it, sitting in, in a group of maybe 15, 20 people who were there because they really wanted to be there and I knew some of them. And there was incredible food that she prepared for everyone. And somehow the entire chemistry of that event was so perfect like it hit all the right notes and I'm not even talking about you know I don't remember whether you know I was happy with how I played or not I think I think I was but the whole overall experience just really represented I think something that I that I kind of like my like what my life is like in music and it's not like that every day but I have enough of those experiences and I I know how valuable that is at this point that I feel, I feel, I feel lucky and I feel like, yes, that's, that's, that's what it's, that's what I'm striving for. Awesome. Thank you for, uh, thanks for talking with me and, uh, oh, my pleasure. Yeah. Nate, thank you. Yeah. All, right. All right. There's Heath Marlowe. It's been really great revisiting this conversation. Thank you so much, Heath. Uh, there's this thing that he said that I've been thinking a lot about. There's a quote. I ultimately think that if I could just do what I want to do and live how I want to live, I would just go to music camp. <laughs> and uh, for folks who haven't been to those music festivals, like what Heath is talking about, this might sort of remind you of like <laughs> band camp. Uh, but that's not quite it. Uh, or maybe it is. And we're just talking about something that's incredibly nerdy here. But so when he talks about that sense of belonging that he got from those music camps, that's been tremendously validating for me. Uh, I think for Heath, and I know for me, the power of music is not really about just playing the music, but it's about feeling a part of something important. And I don't want to say that's the only thing out there. I think there are a lot of people who just love playing their instrument. But for folks like me, I've needed something else. And uh, Heath has really, as I said, validated that. So I've got a bit of a tangent here, but I wanted to share it with you all anyways. And uh, as many things, as many tangents in my life are this one comes from the YouTube algorithm, uh, and it is a TED Talk. Uh, sorry for folks who aren't fans of TED Talks, but uh, this one is by the author Johan Hari, uh, and he's done uh, a lot of nonfiction research books. And this one is, um, well, it's he says that the World Health Organization has shown, their, their research has shown that depression and anxiety have been on the rise in Western countries since the 1970s. And that in Western countries like the United States, the treatment focus has been on biology, like the, the chemical imbalances in the brain, 
and thus our sort of national focus on medication. While chemical imbalances are apparently often a factor, and sometimes they are the factor, the rise of depression and anxiety in these nations has much more to do with societal factors. And this is what the research shows. We find out that loneliness, jobs that have us sitting for most of the time and not getting enough exercise, feeling undervalued in your job, lacking a sense of meaning in your life, these are equally important factors which are often the cause of those chemical imbalances. He says, again, that the research shows that if you're depressed, if you are anxious, it's not because you are weak. You are not crazy. And for the most part, you are not a machine with broken parts. Instead, you're a human being with unmet needs. I needed to hear that. As classical musicians, we are taught that our need, I hate to make it this simple, but our need should be to follow directions. Directions from the score that we're reading, from the conductor who's conducting us, from the teacher that we're working with. And I've met folks who can find and thrive on the beauty in striving to meet a composer's demands. And I think that's possible. But Heath's journey and what inspires me about him has been about his mission to broaden our understanding of what a musician needs. Making sure that musicians find community, feel that sense of belonging, feel that sense of being part of something important. I really wish I had had that when I was 19. Yeah, that's it. Uh, This show, produced, recorded, and edited by me, with help from Brian Gilling, Brent Edmondson, Kiyoshi Hayashi, Alex Gooden, Heath Marlowe, and all the members of the Palaver team. Of course, Anna French gave me belly rubs when I got stressed out. That was enormously helpful. Anna, thank you very much. (laughs) That is it for this episode. Remember, your feet work real hard. Take good care of them. Buy a pumice stone. <laughs>